0: Well, as we stand, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus Christ, our shepherd king, we pray that you would rule over us now through the scriptures, that they might be for us a comfort, a rebuke, a restoration, that we might serve you this week for your name's sake. Amen. Well, please sit down. And uh, as you do so, turn back in the Church Bibles to page 294. Uh, be a great help to you, I think, if you can see that. Uh, 1 Samuel 22, page 294, in one of the church, Red Church Bibles. Well, according to the commentators, it's one of the most remarkable leadership feuds in political history. Uh, the leader in office surrounded by his followers, and uh, the leader in waiting surrounded by his And so, as the Telegraph put it this week, the air has been thick with talk of plots. Political knives are being sharpened, political obituaries are being written, but as two Downing Street tribes go to war, the nation is left wondering who really is the leader of the people. Well, as we return for the final time to 1 Samuel, we read of a more ancient but far more significant leadership battle. You could even call it a tale of two kings. The best of times, the worst of times, the folly of a king in office and the faithfulness of a king in waiting. Last week we left David, the king elect, in the cave of Abdullam, rejected by the world but surrounded by those who knew that their need was great and in chapter 22 and verse 6 we travelled to Gibeah and Saul, the king in office, sits under a tamarisk tree surrounded by a bunch of Self-seeking, yes, man. David, the faithful king; Saul, the foolish king. Yet, actually, at the time, as you read these of these events, it really wasn't that obvious the identity of the true king. Yeah, who'd have thought that David, the Lord's anointed? one who was rejected and weak and vulnerable, hiding away in a cave, surrounded by those in distress, debt and discontent. Who would have thought that that was the Lord's anointed? Whereas Saul? Well, he sits with royal spear in hand, verse 6, surrounded by all his officials and apparently a generous benefactor and protector of his people. But if you bother to look a little bit closer, you will see the identity of the true leader of God's people. See, The first thing to note from this chapter is this. Amidst the suffering of the Lord's anointed, we see the identity of God's king. Amidst the suffering of the Lord's anointed, we see the identity of God's king. Now, the writer of 1 Samuel gives his readers two subtle clues concerning the identity of God's king. Saul, verse 6, brandishes a spear. David, verse 10, wields a sword. Now, the spear is a reminder of the one who threatens death to God's king, whereas the sword is a reminder of the one who secures life for God's people. Now, it may be that Saul's spear was merely a symbol of royal power, But I think there's more in the writer's intention than that. You see, for the observant reader, very mention of Saul's spear calls to mind his homicidal tendencies. Indeed, on all the previous occasions, when we read of Saul with spear in hand, he is attempting to kill an innocent man. Chapter 18, verse 8, he tried to kill David twice. Chapter 19, verse 9, he tries to kill David again chapter 20, verse 33, he tries to kill Jonathan, his own son, because Jonathan helped David to escape. See, Saul's spear is a reminder of the one who threatens death to God's innocent king. David's sword, on the other hand, is a reminder of the one who secures life for God's people. You see, David has, verse 10, the sword of Goliath the Philistine. I both a reminder of Saul's failure and David's success. For where Saul failed to deal with the Philistine aggression against God's people, David succeeded. David defeated the Philistine giant Goliath and the people rejoiced. Indeed, one of the great ironies of this passage is that whilst David's actions rescued God's people from their enemies, Saul's actions result in God's people being treated like their enemies. So Saul's orders to Diag result not only in the death of 85 priests, but the inhabitants of an entire town. Verse 19, you see, Nob was devoted to destruction. Priests, men, women, children, infants, cattle, donkeys and sheep. So much for the protection and provision of Saul... with kings like that who needs enemies now surprising as it may seem David though he was rejected and weak and vulnerable he is the true king of God's people now of course Saul is the king the people want David is the king the people need So it's interesting to read Saul's desperate appeal to people's self-interest in verse 7. Saul said to them, listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? You see, Saul, a Benjaminite himself, addresses his own tribe and says, look, you've never had it so good Now, of course, in getting the king they wanted, the people end up with the king they deserve. So God warned them back in chapter 8 of the fundamental inequity that Saul's rule would bring. Choosing Saul was a very bad idea. And the Lord's warnings are unwittingly echoed in Saul's own comments. Back in chapter 8, God says, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. Some he will assign to command to be commanders of thousands. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. You see, with Saul, it's jobs for the boys and food for the favoured. Whereas hidden away in a cave, there is a king who is faithful and honoured, rejected by men but chosen by God. So in a testimony that will seal his own fate, Ahimelech the priest tells Saul what he doesn't want to hear, verse 14. Who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard and highly respected, highly honoured in your household? Who is like David? And as we approach Easter, we remember that the king to whom David appoints, the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, the Christ as the New Testament puts it. He seemed far from impressive when he walked this earth. Oh, for sure, he strode into Jerusalem to the great acclaim of the crowds. But he was, by the end of the week, despised and rejected. He stood as an innocent man before a corrupt and compromised pagan ruler. Pilate offered to release to the people their king. And their response? We have no king but Caesar. Caesar. Tale of two kings. The king we want and the king we need. You know, the Bible teaches that there is a leadership battle in every human heart. In essence, it it is a battle between self-rule or the Saviour's rule. Either we will think that we know what is best for our lives or we will recognise that only God knows what is best. Either we will do what we want or we will accept what we need. Either life will carry on without Jesus or we will see that Jesus is God's King. The one who loved us and gave himself for us. I, I know that in the ever pressing busyness of life The identity of God's king and my allegiance to him seems a matter of little consequence. Now Easter will come and go, little more than a momentary hiatus amidst the pressing demands of family and careers and retirement. But the identity of God's king is the question not just of our lives, but of our eternities. See, one day Jesus will ask you the question that he asked the disciples in Mark 8. Not just, who do people say I am, for we cannot forever take refuge behind the opinions of others. Now, the question that Jesus will one day ask you is this. Who do you say? Of course, on that day, Christ's eternal rule will be obvious and undeniable. But whether it brings us joy or sorrow then depends on whether we will bow the knee to him now. Amidst the suffering of the Lord's anointed, we learn the identity of God's King. Secondly, amidst the suffering of the Lord's anointed, we learn the certainty of God's judgment. The certainty of God's judgment. I think all of us are somewhat ambivalent towards the notion of justice. We we want it and we don't want it. So justice is very important when you are the victim of some wrong, but very uncomfortable when you are the perpetrator of some wrong. See, other people's wrongs should be punishable, but my wrong should be excusable so I remember as a child the moment when whilst playing cowboys and Indians with my brother the arrow from my bow hit the ceiling above the stairs it was not the first time that it had happened either at my hand or my brother's but this time the arrow managed to dislodge a rather large lump of plaster from the ceiling Standing in the dust and debris, my brother and I looked at each other horrified. Now, with customary sibling affection, my first thought was to wish that it had been my brother who'd fired the offending arrow and not me. But with the bow dangling from my hand, my guilt was undeniable. My second thought was to hope that having cleared up the plaster, my father would never again look upwards and see the damage. It was a vain hope. My father's justice was inescapable. Well, 1 Samuel 22 is a reminder that God's justice is inescapable. And unlike human justice, it is always fair. It is never corrupt. It is never compromised. Now, you you may remember as far back as the beginning of of the book of Samuel that it opens at a turbulent period in Israel's history. It was a time when Israel had no king, and everyone, including the priest, did what was right in their own eyes. Religious observance had become an empty formality, not least because Israel's leaders had become irredeemably corrupt. So even Israel's priests, the sons of Eli, had no regard for the Lord according to chapter 2 they were wicked men whose sin was very great in the Lord's sight these religious priests exploited their position and power for material gain and sexual favours their religious piety a sickening cover for their moral bankruptcy in the end God's patience runs out And the one who is ever slow to anger delivers his sentence. Eli and all his family, this corrupt priesthood, will face the perfect justice of God. And yet, as you read on in 1 Samuel, God's judgment seems remarkably slow in coming. Where is this justice he promised? That's true, Eli and his sons die as the Lord had warned, but the rest of this priestly family, well life and ministry just carries on as normal. Easy then I guess for them to imagine that there was another explanation for the death of Eli and his sons. Perhaps their deaths were nothing more than natural causes. Perhaps all this talk about God's judgment, well perhaps it was just fundamentalist scaremongering. Perhaps what was needed was a more liberal and a less literal approach to the word of God. And then you come to chapter 22. And a sobering reminder that God's perfect justice is inevitable, inescapable, certain. You see, verse 6, Saul has heard that David and his men have been discovered So in verses 7 to 8, he delivers his everybody hates me, nobody loves me speech. Now He's looking for a lead that will help him to find David. But whether through ignorance or fear, his officials say nothing. But Donag the Edomite speaks. An unholy alliance between Israel's old king and Israel's old enemies, verse 9. I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahiatab at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. And of course, if you know your genealogy in this book, Ahimelech, son of Ahitob, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, a surviving member of a corrupt and condemned priesthood. And so the reader is left wondering, perhaps justice deferred Isn't justice abandoned after all? So Ahimelech is summoned. He's charged with conspiracy, verse 13. He's condemned, verse 16. But Saul is struggling to find an executioner, verse 17. The king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were not willing to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. At the Edomite, though, suffered no such scruples. So Saul issues the command to strike down the priest, verse 18, and Doeg complies without question. And in these awful events, for which Doeg bears a terrible responsibility, the Lord finally delivers the justice that he has promised. You see, God's justice is inevitable, inescapable, certain. And God can even use the wickedness of men to secure all he has promised. Now, of course, people scoff now as they doubtless did then. All this talk about God's judgment, it's just, it's just fundamentalist scaremongering, isn't it? Yeah, after all, where is this judgment that God promised? Now, life seems to carry on pretty much as it has since the beginning of creation. I mean, There's no lightning bolts peering from heaven. But 1 Samuel 22 is a reminder of the certainty of God's judgment. As Peter put it in the New Testament, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. He is patient with you. Not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And yet, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, Jesus Christ. And he has given proof of this to all people by raising him from the dead. So if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning... God says you need to repent. You need to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ. And if you are a follower of Jesus, well, you, like me, need to keep on turning from your sin and to keep on turning to Christ. For repentance, for all of us who call ourselves Christians, is a lifelong necessity. It's remarkably easy to presume upon God's mercy. We become comfortable in our sin. We become complacent about its seriousness. We assume, like Voltaire, that God will forgive. That is his job. But as Paul puts it in the New Testament, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Amidst the suffering of the Lord's anointed, we learn the identity of God's King, the certainty of God's judgment, and thirdly and finally, the security of God's salvation. Now, Doeg's killing spree is comprehensive and without restraint, verse 19. But verse 20, Abiathar, a son of Ahimelech, a son of Ahitab, escaped and fled to join David. Now, from one perspective, David seems an obvious place to flee to. After all, where else are you going to go to in the circumstances? You're a marked man. You're pursued by the king and his ruthless henchmen. Your options are fairly limited. But then you read verse 22, and you, you do wonder whether Abiathar has fled from the frying pan into the fire. See, he's escaped the violence of Doeg, but has he really escaped the justice of God? Is it possible to escape the justice of God? Verse 22, David said to Abiathar, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul. I am responsible for the death of your father's whole family. Now I'm not sure whether the version that you've got in front of you, if you've got the church Bible, makes clear the full weight of what David is saying here. The NIV makes David's admission of responsibility sound like an unfortunate and unintentional consequence of his conversation with Ahimelech in in chapter 21. So David is explaining to Abiathar that he knew that Doeg was there and he knew that Doeg would tell Saul but he couldn't actually do anything about it. Now that may well be the case but it may be better to translate verse 22 as the ESV does. I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Was David unwittingly or intentionally responsible for the events that led to the judgment of God, the justice of God on this corrupt priesthood of Eli? It may well be that David knew of God's judgment on Eli and his family. It may well be that his involvement was more active than passive. Either way, When you remember that David is the Lord's anointed and that the Lord's judgment is certain, then Abiathar's flight to David seems perilous at the least. Which is why verse 23 is so utterly extraordinary. What does David say? Stay with me. Do not be afraid. The man who is seeking your life is seeking mine also. You will be safe with me. You see, amid the suffering of the Lord's anointed, there is a reminder of the security of God's salvation. You see, God's justice is certain. But there is one place where you are safe. And that is with the Lord's anointed, that is with the Messiah, or as the New Testament puts it, with the Christ. There is nowhere else to go. No one else who can rescue you and me from the wrath to come. No one. Just as we finish, I'd like you to turn on to page 337, I think, in the Church Bibles, to 1 Kings 2. To the point where this story actually comes to its completion. See, for Abiathar, this member of this condemned and corrupt priesthood, for him... Life instead of death came finally not under the rule of David himself, but under the rule of a son of David, Solomon. Verse 26. To Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go back to your fields at Anathoth. You deserve to die, but I will not put you to death now, because you carried the ark of the sovereign Lord before my father David. And shared all my father's hardships. So Solomon removed Abiatha from the priesthood of the Lord, fulfilling the word of the Lord, fulfilling the word the Lord had spoken at Shiloh about the house of Eli. You see, God's justice is certain. But there is one place where you are safe, and that is with the Lord's anointed, with the Messiah, with the Christ. There is nowhere else to go. There is no one else who can rescue you and me from the wrath to come. And for all God's people, life instead of death ultimately comes not under the rule of David himself, but under the rule of another son of David. The son of David. Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ the Messiah, the Anointed One. And so as you and I journey once again to Easter, we remember the identity of God's King, the certainty of God's justice, the security of God's salvation. And this morning, God's King, the Anointed One, Jesus, who is the Christ, gives to us precious words for fearful sinners, you will be safe with me. Let's pray, shall we? Father in all the busyness of this week we remember again the astonishing truths of Easter of Jesus Christ who is your King and who will one day be our judge thank you for the security that there is in him that he is a refuge for us That through him and his death, there is safety from your coming justice. Father, we pray that each of us here might truly hide ourselves in him, we pray. For your name's sake. Amen. Amen.